From Acts 17, beginning in verse 16, hear now the word of God. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again. About this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, help us this morning to grasp what it is to be your creatures, to live in your world, to have you as our God and to worship you alone. If we have other loves, if we have idols, if we have adored anything more than you, show us this morning through your word and by your spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In my earliest days as a Christian, I remember being very sure of the truthfulness of Christianity. Um, That's actually why I became a Christian, because God convinced me 
And he used arguments and reasons to show me and wake me up from my spiritual death. And, and I guess I, I, I know that not many people are like this, but he used arguments and reasons and things like that to persuade me that his son was real, that he really rose, that he really died, that he rose again, and that he existed in history and in time and in space. And I certainly felt that, especially at the beginning of my walk with God. But after a few years, I did hit a point where I started to suddenly feel insecure. And the more that I invested myself as a Christian, the more involved I became, the more I started to feel the doubts and fears start to creep in. And instead of answering those doubts and answering those fears and seeing that there really are answers, I just basically withdrew from anybody who would challenge my faith. Anybody who would challenge the truths of Christianity, I would just not give them an audience. I would avoid books by atheists. If I saw an atheist on television, I would just change the channel. And I didn't develop relationships with unbelievers. And because I had this deep-seated fear, I said to myself, what if they know something I don't know? What if they know this thing? And if I only knew this thing, then I would just give it all up. And because I was afraid and insecure, I just withdrew. But then there, there came a point where I started to form relationships with atheists and I started to get to know friends who were philosophy majors and they were atheists. And as I got to know them and as I got to talk with them, I started to discover something. They didn't know something that I, that I didn't know. They didn't have some silver bullet. There was no thing, some devastating argument that was just going to send Christianity tumbling down. And I had just stuck my head in the sand and decided to ignore Uh, That doesn't mean there are challenges. That doesn't mean there are not questions that Christians have to answer. But as I started to read their books again, and as I started to listen to what they had to say, I discovered that there was nothing for me to fear. And one of the things I discovered is that many of the same doubts and concerns and fears that some Christians can feel are problems for every worldview, every perspective, all people, whether atheists or pagans or just unbelievers of some other stripe. And so today we we begin to look at how Paul approaches this group of sophisticated thinkers when it comes to learning to share, to sharing the gospel with them. And one thing we see here is that Paul is not afraid. Paul is not intimidated whatsoever to just bring the word of God to these people that we suppose are so philosophically sophisticated and thoughtful. So Paul goes into this city and he enters this area called the Agora. And the Agora was just the marketplace. It was where people did business. It's where people traded. And Paul gets the attention of these philosophers as he's speaking. And Luke tells us what kind of philosophers they are. The first group that he mentions are the Epicureans. Epicureans believed that there were gods. They believed in many gods. But they believed that these gods were distant and didn't care for us. And they actually didn't even believe in life after death. In this sense, it's, it's a lot like what we call deism today. You know, this belief that, well, God spun the universe into existence and then he sort of hung back and now he doesn't care about human affairs. We call that deism. The Epicureans were kind of like that, except that they believed in many gods instead of just one god. And because there was no life after death for the Epicureans, and because they didn't expect anything to happen to us, 
once we close our eyes for the last time. They said the most important thing in life, the meaning of life, was the reasoned pursuit of pleasure. You've heard that phrase, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. That's very much the perspective of these Epicureans. They expected to die, so why not have fun before it happens? It's basically their perspective. By the way, that should sound a great deal like the day we live in. Now, sometimes people will acknowledge the existence of God, but then they live like the Epicureans did. So uh, understand, this is not far and away radically different from the way people feel today. Now, there's this other group that Luke mentions, and they are called the Stoics. And the Stoics believed in many gods also, but they also believed that there was a supreme deity over all, that he wasn't personal necessarily. You would almost think of this as an impersonal existence. Uh, They would call it fate. And they would say fate is even over the gods. And so because they were fatalists and because they believed that the universe at its core was impersonal, then they believed that everything that happens is supposed to happen. There's nothing we can do to resist it. And so the purpose of life was not necessarily the reasoned pursuit of pleasure. Instead, they said the purpose of life is for us to learn not to struggle against fate, to learn not to fight against what's going to happen to us no matter what. And so they said, and if you read the writings of the, of the Stoics, they will say things like, it does us no good to think about wishing our circumstances were different. And so you should just learn to accept your circumstances no matter what, because accepting pain is better than fighting pain. Um, sort of whatever happens, happens. Que sera, sera. That's the perspective of the Stoics. And these men are hearing what Paul says, and they do not recognize their worldview here. They hear something very different. They call him a babbler. They say, this is a guy who has some strange ideas. And so they invite him. They want to hear more from him. So they bring him to this place called the Areopagus in Athens. And translated, it just means Mars Hill. That's the name of the place. It's Mars Hill. And by the time that Paul had arrived in Athens, this place had seen better days. Uh, There had been days where the philosophers were exploring new thoughts, new ideas, new territories. Um, But that was long before. The days of Plato and Socrates and Aristotle and all of these men that we think of when we think of uh, Athenian philosophers, they were gone. It had been hundreds of years since these men had taught or spoken. And so... Uh, When Paul shows up in Athens, I do think sometimes we think of this man as he's showing up in the intellectual capital of the world. And that's basically right. That's basically right if you're talking about the Western world. But intellectually, this place was not as imposing as we think of. We think Paul must have gone in here and these guys were going to tear him to shreds. And we have this fear for Paul. You know, if you've never read it before, what's going to happen to Paul? Maybe they're going to tear his faith to pieces. And the truth is, uh, it's the opposite, right? Uh, They are not locked in. He is not locked into this room with them. They are locked in with him. Paul has something he's about to do. He's about to bring it. This is a group of people who are desperate for the truth. They haven't found the truth. And now he's about to give them the truth. So he's not talking to these people who are in some superior position. In fact, he is speaking to these people who are very needy. 
They actually feel knowledgeable. They feel like they actually are, um, are, are, are full of information, but they are in fact desperate to know the unknown God. They are so desperate. And so he speaks to this group of people who have big differences with Paul, big differences on the resurrection, big difference in how many gods there are, big difference in whether God cares about our human affairs. But Paul also has things in common with them, and Paul makes that common ground the basis of his appeal to them. He says, you know, we may have very different views on this, but there are three things that we have in common. And I actually want to highlight those three things here this morning. They have a common impulse. They have a common creator. And they have a common judgment. Now, I'm going to do something a little bit different this morning. This is a three-point sermon, and we're only going to do the first point today. So next week, you have to come back now. This is my way of giving you the cliffhanger and making you come back. Uh, you, would, you were going to be here anyway, but it's still a cliffhanger. So next week, we're going to look at the second and third points. This, this week, we're only going to look at that first point. Let's understand how Paul evangelizes these philosophers by beginning to look at how he ministers in a place where ideas and debates and idols really were the order of the day. I am convinced as we look at the way Paul deals with these intellectuals that we will see that the gospel not only stands up to scrutiny, but it answers the deepest cries of the human heart. And that's how Paul appeals to them here. Whether you are a farmer or a teacher or a homemaker or a banker or a salesman or a philosopher, Christianity has the answer. So first in this passage, we see a common impulse. And the impulse that Paul notices and points out is the impulse to worship. It's the impulse to worship. Human beings we're made to worship. It is hard-coded into our constitution. It is as much a part of us as breathing and eating are hard-coded into us. Worship is why we exist. Uh, our shorter catechism, even our children's catechism, asks this question, what is the chief end of man? Why were we created? And I'm grateful for this just good answer that our catechism gives. The answer is, we were created to glorify God And enjoy him forever. We were made to worship the God of heaven and earth. One of my favorite verses that deals with what worship is, is this passage in Matthew 15, 8, where Jesus says this. He says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. And if you sort of take that verse apart and you ask yourself, what is worship according to this verse? Jesus is saying that worship involves honoring God with our lips, loving God with our hearts, and obeying God, God's law, from our hearts. So it's not just about what we say, and it's not just about what we do. It's about what we say and what we do and what we believe deep inside of who we are when we do it. We were made for this. This is our purpose. This is why we exist. Now, the problem, of course, is this. Sin. (laughs) Um, Calvin very famously said that our heart is like an idol factory that never stops running. It is going 24-7, constantly churning out idols. Sometimes for a lot of us, it's the same idols 
But a lot of times it's different idols, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And you just have this conveyor belt of our heart just constantly sending out new idols. We are good at it. We are so good at it. There is something within the heart of each of us that screams out, I need to be part of something bigger than myself. And then our urge is to glorify that thing. Human beings are very good worshipers. We know how to do it. Our problem is not that we don't know how to glorify something. Our our, our problem is not that we don't know how to cry out with joy when we see something that gets us excited. I mean, later today, there is going to be an event that is going to captivate the entire nation of the United States and prove once and for all that we are excellent worshipers. We're excellent worshipers. We know how to do it. We, we, have not, we are not missing practice at worshiping. The problem, of course, is what we worship, right? We were made to worship the creator. We were designed that way. The, the author of Ecclesiastes says this. He says, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. You see that phrase? He has put eternity in our hearts. Every human being has eternity in their hearts, and yet we have this conflict going on because we're sinners. And so we've got eternity in our hearts, and we are so desperate for something like it that we reach out for all these things that aren't that. So we reach out for substitutes wherever we can find them. In fact, we're desperate to settle for worshiping anything but the real, true God because of sin. And that's what the Athenians have been doing. By the time Paul comes along, they have been worshiping anything else they can find. He looks around and he he speaks to them. And and I love the way that he speaks to them because he, in a way, he sort of flatters them, but he does it in a backhanded way. Because he looks around, he says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. You know, he, he like compliments them. You can just imagine them saying, why, thank you. I thank you. We, we are very religious people here. But then he goes on. He doesn't insult them. He, he sort of appeals to their vanity a little bit. It makes it sound like a compliment. And then he explains what he means. Why does he think they're very religious? Well, he sees something. He says, as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. He's going to tell them the secret. He's going to tell them the thing they've been yearning to know. What a way to grab a group of people. I sometimes hear people say, even well-meaning people, that religion is bad. That religion is a negative thing. That Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship. As if religion is a bad thing. But we know from Scripture that religion isn't the problem. The, wrong, the answer is that it's the wrong kind of religion that's the problem. It's self-centered religion that's all about me that's the problem. Um, religion is bad if it's centered on you and it's centered on what you can get. And so what happens when religion is centered on you? It becomes about doing the right ceremonies so that you can get in. Uh, it's about doing the right wor- saying the right words. It's about all of these things sort of centering around me. But there is a such thing as good religion. James talks about that in the book of James. He says, true religion, good religion, the kind of religion that God loves, 
is visiting orphans and widows in their affliction and keeping oneself unstained from the world. So there is a such thing as good religion. He's talking to very religious people. But this is not the good kind of religion. They are surrounded by idols. Their objects of worship are these idols, and they are afraid of missing something. And so they even have this unknown God that they create this uh, setting for, and because they want to cover their bases. What if we miss the one? What if we end up being in huge trouble because we're not worshiping enough? So just see this. The Athenians are tremendously skilled and tremendously devoted worshipers. The ability and the capacity for worship is not their issue at all. But that impulse, see, was given by them, given to them by God, and it was given to them for something greater than themselves. And instead, it's been totally twisted and perverted, and it's produced this twisted kind of false religion. And so then Paul comes in with this, and he addresses them, and he says, I get you. You see something important. You see what you were made for. But I want you to know that your object of worship is all wrong. See, your worship is false because the object of your worship is false. The one that you love isn't real. They are beings that you created from your own imagination and skill. And you set this idol up and now you worship it, but you made it. And what he does is he calls them to repent. And we will talk about that next week, talk about the response he demands of them this next week. But what he does here is he lays this groundwork, and the groundwork is is meant to lead to an application that they need to turn from worthless things. He's preparing them right now. Think through all the worthless things that you love. Think of the idols that you are so devoted to. And that's what he's doing with them right now. He's bringing them up. He's bringing the idols to their attention before he gives the application that they need to hear. And what we hear this morning is is Paul working in the confrontation stage. But before they can do what they were made for, they have to reject the thing that they made themselves. They need to reject the false idols. And Paul confronts them with this. I want to make two applications to what Paul says to the Athenians about their gods. And the first application is, look at this from Paul's perspective. Look what he's doing here. Anytime that you evangelize someone, you are attacking their idols. Anytime you tell someone what the gospel is, what Jesus has done, anytime you tell someone what they they can't do for themselves, you are attacking their idols. Um. For the Athenians, the idol was these little statues. Uh, For someone who's perhaps an atheist, the idol is self-determination. We talked about that this morning in Sunday school. And for all other false worldviews, it's some other figure or book or false foundation for belief. And if you are sitting in these pews week in and week out, and let's say you don't believe, let's say you're even skeptical Um, Maybe you come out because it's expected to. You come because you don't want to rock the boat. um, But you don't care for the preaching. You don't care for the message. Part of what is happening is, if I'm being faithful, then every week your idols are being attacked. 
And every day, if you're hearing the message, then you are in a defensive posture because the thing that you hold on to and love the most is being pummeled and it's being struck and it's being attacked in one way or another because the Bible, if anything, is an idol-smashing book. That is what this book is all about, smashing all our idols. And so if you share the gospel with someone and you tell someone Jesus is Lord, you are nonviolently attacking the very thing that person is putting all their hope in if it isn't Jesus. And so I suppose the first application I really want to encourage you with is this. When we evangelize, when we share the gospel, we need to know our backs are up against the wall and it is a hard thing especially if you don't have the Holy Spirit helping you. Because what we're essentially doing is is going to this person and saying to them, all of these things that you've been putting your hope in are false. I'm going to give you real hope. I'm going to give you a message that actually will save you. But in the process, you have to abandon all the other ones. That television won't save you. That iPhone that makes you so happy won't save you. Your family won't save you. Your car won't save you. That beautiful house that you've invested so much in, it won't save you. Your job, as much as you love it, won't save you. That politician you put all your hope in won't save you. Those video games won't save you. Your husband, your wife, your children won't save you. Literally anything that isn't God won't save you. And, and when you tell someone that, and they really hear it, and this thing that they've been putting all of their hope in and, and building everything else around is threatened, and that is painful, and it, and it hurts. And so it's like separating flesh from bone. And in, in some cases, the person you're talking to may have spent decades building up their sense of security around this false thing. That can't save them. My application is be ready for someone to resist when you come to them with a message like that. My second application, though, is this. Is that you? Do you have something in common with the people of Athens? Have you been building your life around idols? You know, it's easy. The first point's easy, right? I'm thinking about other people. I'm thinking about uh, what's messed up with other people. I'm thinking about the way that other people think. But now, here's the painful question. Look at your own heart. And you realize you might just be literal and say, well, preachers, we don't have any idols, not in my house. And, you know, we don't live in the Eastern, Eastern Asia. It's not normal for us to see little idols literally set up in our houses But it is still something we have today. We still have idols. Our little heart factories are still running 24-7. What is your factory producing? What's coming off the conveyor belt? Because all of the idols in our lives have one thing in common. And the thing that that they have in common is we think they'll help us. We think they'll help us. We think they'll fill our hearts. We think that they will satisfy us. We can do this with our families. We can be so attached to our family that we can crush them with our expectations or we can be undone when they fail us. Uh, We were just talking about living far away from family. I live very far from my mother. My mother is in Kansas. I am here in Mississippi. 
She doesn't see me. If she puts all of her hope in me, she's going to be crushed by the disappointment of knowing that her son lives so far away and she doesn't get to see her grandkids. And you can do that too. If you have family that moves away, if you put your hope in that, you can be crushed. Or if we lose them, we end up losing everything. We can do this with our careers, right? If your career stalls out, you start to lose hope. Or if you lose your job, suddenly this thing that we built our whole purpose around crumbles and disappears and goes away. We can do it with our stuff. We can do it with our gadgets. We are slowly but surely becoming chemically dependent on the endorphins that we get when we look at the screen that we carry around in our little pocket. So many people in our society find themselves incapable of looking at their phones infrequently. And so you have to look constantly. And when you do, you get that little rush. That gadget can distract you. That gadget can actually help you. It can help you do your job, but it can't save you. See, the thing about idols is they can be taken away from us in a heartbeat, sometimes literally. How do we react to idolatry? How are we supposed to react to idolatry? To the idolatry we see around us? To the idolatry we see within us? What's the right response? I think we maybe start with Paul here because because Paul is grieved by the idols that he sees. And the Greek word here is really interesting. I know usually Greek words aren't interesting. They're usually that you don't believe it when the preacher says it. But if you've ever heard the English word paroxysm, paroxysm is this English word. We don't use it very often, but it, it refers to this sudden attack of violent emotion. A paroxysm is almost like if you see someone throw a fit and they just start kicking things and like really getting upset. That's, that's the word that we use. Uh, you know, or we can use, at least if you pull out your dictionary or your thesaurus. Um, but the Greek word here is for how Paul reacts is paroxysm. Paul is not just grieved. Grieved is what some of the translations say, but it's a very, very soft way of putting it. Uh, the ESV says provoked. Uh, provoking is, is a fine word. Um, really, if you were going to say it, you would just say Paul threw a fit. Uh, Paul threw a fit when he saw these idols. And see, idolatry should provoke us. It often doesn't because we've got it going on so much that we don't see it even with ourselves or others. Idolatry is twisting a God-given impulse to worship. Sin has taken that desire and that need within us to worship and turned it into this hideous, ugly thing where we love something that's a creature, but we don't love the creator. And it's very easy for us to be provoked by the idolatry of other people. If I asked you, what are your neighbor's idols? You could probably start rattling a bunch off. But how provoked are you about your own idols? How provoked are you to think of how often and how easily we love other people or we love other things more than we love the God we were made to love? It comes so naturally to us. Does it ever make you angry to think about how easily Your own heart drifts to stuff, but not to God. You ever think about that? Does it make you angry to think about how far your own heart is from the way that it ought to be? The things we love, how far they are from the one that we ought to love? Does it anger you to think that the God who made heaven and earth, 
The sea and all that is in them is perfectly holy, perfectly just, perfectly pure. But here we are, each of us, and we can sometimes go a whole day, maybe not even acknowledging him. Look inside. Ask this question. What is the thing in my life that if I lost it, I would be undone? What is the thing in my life that I would give everything to keep it? Is it a job? Uh, I, have a, I have a pastor friend, and another pastor told him this. He said, I have decided to lay my family upon the altar of the ministry. He said, I've decided that I would rather be a minister even if it cost me my, my wife and my children. And you see this in, in their lives. They'll, they'll, they never see their family. They're working constantly, traveling all over the U.S., traveling all over the world, a name, making a name for themselves. But it's not just pastors who do this. That's just an example. That's just my world that I run in. But there are men and women all over the world who would give up all they have for their career. I don't know if you love your career that much, but, but some people do. And maybe that's not your vice. Uh, others would do the same thing for a relationship or for possessions or for money. I said, it, I said it at the beginning. We were made with a common impulse. Paul is talking to people who were born with a common impulse. And he's talking to us in a sense too. Because we have the impulse to worship. What are you worshiping? What are you tempted to worship? What are you drawn towards? When gravity has its way and you aren't thinking very carefully, what is it that you're drawn towards? What is your idol? What are your idols? You're not physically bowing down and praying to them like they did in Athens. But what do you have? What do you love that you think will deliver you? You wouldn't admit it to anybody, but you do. The thing that you depend on to bring you joy, to save you, To satisfy you. Let me encourage you to follow Paul here. Look inside your own heart and be provoked. Let your idols anger you. But then in your anger, do something even more important. Repent of your idols and worship. Worship God. It's what you were made for. Don't follow worthless things. Worship God. He is the one thing you can worship that isn't false and will never fail you. Worship God. He's true. He'll never fail you. He'll never betray you. He will keep all of his promises. Worship God. It's why you were born. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are really in a desperate spot. Because we know that you created us to love you. We know you made us to treasure you and to worship you. And yet we know we've fallen short. With our lips, we said that we love you. With our words, we've said that you are supreme over us. And yet, with our lives every day, we also say something else. That there are things we love and put our hope in. Forgive us, O God, when we love anything more than you. Set Christ before us so that we can remember there is hope even for people with weak hearts and souls because of your own precious son who died to set us free from worthless things. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.